Well, friends, I'm thrilled again that you've joined us in worship today. And we are right now in the middle of this worship service in the middle of a sermon series that stretched for many weeks called Bonfire with the Sages. And this invitation to you from us at Bel Air Church is to turn to Scripture each of these weeks and to allow not only God's Word, but the Holy Spirit to guide our imagination to wonder what would it be like to sit down around a bonfire to have some conversations with some of the wise sages of Scripture, the heroes of our faith. And I've shared each week that bonfires, of course, are kind of a natural environment for biblical times. I think they spend a lot more time around bonfires in the Old Testament and in the New Testament compared to us today in our modern era. And yet at the same time, for all of us, and I'll speak for myself, Bonfires have been the environment, the context, the, the space in which I've had some of the greatest conversations in my life. You know, in the midst of a bonfire, there's time that it takes to burn through a bundle of wood. And you're never rushed, in my experience, whether camping or in the backyard of someone's home, when you sit around a bonfire. There's something about that space, that warmth, that uh, I think for me, that altogether different context than most of the rest of life, that I feel like I can totally be present. I can be vulnerable. I can be authentic. I can ask deeper questions. And as the time has gone by in my life around bonfires, I've realized that that space is a sacred space. And as we get into this sermon series, many of you have been commenting on this shirt that I wear in each of these sermons, and it's a reminder for me and for all of us of not just the sages in Scripture, but some of the, the sages in our life. I think of many people, including my grandfather. My grandfather passed a number of years ago, gave me this shirt, this Pendleton, this wool shirt. It was his. He had it from the late 60s. And I think of some of the remarkable things that I've learned from him in my life, many of them around a meal, many of them in the context of normal life, but also most profoundly around a bonfire. And so as we dive into scripture, a reminder that you can get caught up on all of these sermons by going to our YouTube channel. You can search for Bel Air Church on YouTube. You can subscribe and you can explore and dive into how we've taken a look at what a conversation might look like with Abraham, with Esther, with Moses, with Mary, with Job, with many others. And today we get to a famous character in scripture, David, King David. Now on one hand, you could say that, gosh, where, where are we gonna go with this? I mean, we've got just a limited amount of time in this worship service today. This could easily be its own 10-part, 20-part, year-long sermon series. So much is recorded in scripture about David's life. In 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel, of course, in the Psalms, Jesus refers to King David. The book of Acts refers to King David. So much content. But what I want to do is I want us to just open up our heart, to open up our mind to how the Spirit of God will lead us. Again, as we go to God's Word and to imagine what it would be like to have a conversation with King David around a bonfire. I'm going to pray for us that God would lead us and guide us before we go to God's Word. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you tell us that all of Scripture ultimately finds its fulfillment in you. You remind us that we can search the Scriptures and think that in them we will find eternal life, but unless we realize that it points to you, the true author 
and perfecter of our faith, the resurrection and the life, if we fail to see how all this points to you, we miss God's heart to invite us, not to model, not to mimic, not to imitate people in scripture, but ultimately to meet you, to have an encounter with you, Jesus. So, Spirit of God, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would this be honoring and glorifying to you as we open up our hearts and our minds in your word, leaning in to what you have for us? In Jesus' name we pray. We say together, amen. All right, as we've been doing every week in this sermon series, I invite you just to imagine, wherever you are, that you're around a bonfire. And that bonfire is one in which you have front row seats. You're not in the second row, third row. You're not in the back straining your neck to peer in. You're, you're right there. You're as close as you can be surrounding this bonfire with me and so many others, part of our church family. King David is there. And I want you to imagine the warmth of that fire, the, the crackling of the wood as it pops and sparks fly. I want you to imagine yourself in the most comfortable chair possible, dressed warmly. You're not too hot. You're not too cold. You've got your favorite drink in your hand. And here we are in this place, surrounded by those we know and don't know. And I ask my first of three questions, the same questions that I've been asking every single one of these sages of Scripture, these heroes of the faith. And I start with King David. And I say, King David, I've got the first of three questions for you. And the first is this. When you look back upon your life, what is the one thing that God called you to take up in your life. And in that moment, King David looks up from the fire. There is a hush around this space, around the circle, around this fire. And King David responds. From an early age, there was one thing that God called me to take up. And it was to be a man passionately pursuing God's heart. And that was true when I was a young shepherd boy. That was true as a son. That was true as a brother. That was true as a warrior. That was true as a king. That was true as a husband. That was true as a father. That was true from the beginning to the end of my life. God called me to take up being a man passionately pursuing God's heart. Now, you know my life. You know that I had moments of my life where that happened, where I did that. You also know moments of my life where it didn't seem like I was pursuing passionately God's heart. I'm going to share some of those stories in a moment, but I want you to know that that was the great call in my life, to be a man who had a singular focus, a person who didn't get distracted by anything else, the accolades, the circumstances, uh, the reputation, the kingdom, the record, whatever it might be, that I would be a person that wouldn't focus on those things. God was calling me to take up a passionate pursuit of being about God's heart. And what that meant to me in practice was that I would be about God's renown, God's glory, God's fame, that I would be a person that, as it says in the in the law and the prophets, that I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I would love my neighbor as myself. That I would be a person that would be so about God, the maker of heaven and earth, that I would be so about God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that every decision, 
every one of the 72 psalms that I wrote, every time I went to war, every time that I made a decision overseeing the kingdom of Israel, every single moment that I would be a person about God's heart, about God's character, that the things that I would value would be the same things that God values. And of course, again, my life wasn't perfect, but I want to share with you a moment that for me, I look back on my life, was a tangible expression of when I said yes to that call in my life. Of course, I worshiped God as a shepherd boy. I worshiped God throughout my entire life. And as the circumstances played out that I eventually became king of Israel, the first thing that I knew that I had to do was to establish God's presence at the centerpiece of this kingdom. And I want to share with you some of the decisions that I made. The first decisions that I made when I became king. There were kings before me, there were kings after me that wanted to make a great name for themselves, but I, listening to the call of God on my life to be a man passionately pursuing God's heart, I wanted to make God's name higher than my name. And so the first decision I made was to get the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God with great risk to my men's lives. We went and got it and brought it to Jerusalem, to Zion, to establish God's presence as the center of this kingdom. That all that we would do would be centered in the fact that God is our provider, our king, our redeemer, our savior. And then I had this thought as I was in my palace, a palace that before me Saul was in, before that uh, Samuel was in. In this palace, I had this realization, here I am in this home, this opulent home, this kingdom in which I am on the throne. And yet God, God doesn't have a home. And in that moment, I, I committed to build a home for God, a temple for God. And I shared that with the prophet Nathan. And this is what I said to him. See, now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, it stays in a tent. And Nathan said to me, the king, go and do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. And in that moment, I had this opportunity to, to build a home for God. And what happened next absolutely surprised me. I went to sleep, dreaming about this temple that I would build for God. I went to sleep, imagining how magnificent it would be that, that people would come to know that God is the maker of heaven and earth, the one true God above all other gods. I went to sleep with that in my mind, and I woke up the next day, and Nathan came to me. And he shared with me that he had a vision from the Lord. And it surprised me. But I need you to know that when I heard that vision from the Lord, I realized I have a choice. Do I want to be focused on what I want to do for God or do I want to be a person that God was calling me to be, a man passionately pursuing God's heart? And this is what God said to me through the prophet Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? In fact, I, the Lord, have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. 
Whenever I, the Lord, have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to me, David, I am the Lord. I took you up from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you every step of the way. I have cut off your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of all the earth. I, the Lord, will appoint a place for you among my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they, the nation of Israel, may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you, King David, rest from all your enemies. Moreover, I, the Lord, declare to you that I will make you a house. When your days, King David, are fulfilled, and when you, King David, lie down with your ancestors in death, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body. And I, the Lord, will establish his kingdom. His kingdom. His kingdom. Not yours. In fact, he shall build a house for my name. He will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Yes, your house and your kingdom shall be great, and it will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in that moment, I, King David, heard the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, do something that I never imagined. In that moment, after a life of longing to pursue God, in a life of trying to be passionately about his heart, I thought that in that moment it was to be an act of which I would make a house for him. But ironically, in that moment, he spoke to me, but not just spoke to me, but spoke about one of my future ancestors that it would be him who would make a house for the Lord. It would be him who would sit on the throne forever. It would be him whose name would be the greatest of all. And in that moment, I trusted. I decided not to build a temple for the Lord, but I continued to worship. I continued to write psalms. I continued to dance freely in front of the Ark of the Covenant, knowing that my life thrived the most, that I had the most peace, that I had the most security, that I had the most significance, that I had the most joy, simply being about God's heart. And out of the overflow of that worship of God, as God called me to be a person about his heart, it changed how I saw other people. Now, many of you might know about Saul the king before me who tried to kill me. After he had died, I had this moment where God had moved so mightily in my life that I was burdened for his family. You see, in that culture, in that time in the ancient world, it was a customary practice to, to dispose of not just your enemy, 
or anyone that would try to kill you, but you would dispose of their entire family. And God moved so much in my heart that I had this, this deep longing to, to be about God's heart, to not just love him with all my heart, but to love my neighbor as myself. And God defined that not just as those in physical proximity, but even my enemy. And so I sent out my servants and I told them to, to go and find Saul's family, to bring Saul's family into my household so that I could take care of them like God had taken care of me. And so they brought them in and I fed them and I clothed them and I provided for them. But I felt like there was one more that they hadn't brought everyone in. I heard rumors of, of a son, of a child. And so I sent word out again, and finally they found him. And they brought him to my home. And his name was Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth had been dropped as a child. He suffered permanent damage to his legs. He was unable to walk. He was unable to move on his own. He was unable to provide for himself, to care for himself. In that culture, in that time, he was considered good as dead. And yet God had so moved mightily in my heart as I worshiped God that he changed my heart, not just towards those around me that I love, but even towards my enemy and my enemy's family that every single meal, every single day for the rest of his life, I had my servants carry Mephibosheth to my table. And every meal that we shared, he sat at that table as one of my own. He sat at my table as one of my sons. And I have to tell you that that was one of the greatest joys in my life, one of the greatest seasons of my life. I was worshiping freely. I was one who was trusting God, even when I wanted to do things for God. And God says, no, that's not what I want. I want you to go this way. I trusted and I obeyed. And in that season of life, I look back on with the greatest joy because I loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I loved my neighbor as myself. I felt carried into God's presence and even as I had others carried into my presence so that we would enjoy what it meant to be a family. I know that the fullness of my life wasn't always that. And in that moment, I drew, saw King David grow silent and he stared into the fire. And in the silence of that moment, I began to reflect and I began to think about times in my own life where I've pursued God with a passion, where it seemed like there was nothing more important than spending time with God in God's word, in prayer, in worship, longing to know what God would have me do, just, just wanting to be with God. And, and I can look at those seasons in my life those moments in my life, whether it was hours or it was days or it was weeks or it was months or it was years and the ebb and flow of a, of a human life filled with brokenness and sin, I can look in those moments and I can say those were some of the greatest and are some of the most joyful moments of my life. The experience of passionately pursuing God 
with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and loving my neighbor as myself, even seeing people who maybe the world would see differently, I'd loved them. And as we sit around this fire, I, I want you to reflect. That's one of the great things about a bonfire. We can have this space to reflect on our own life. And my question for you is, as you look back upon your life, and maybe it's a season right now, have you experienced what life is like when you are passionately pursuing God above all other things? Whether that's in your private life, whether that's in your relationships, whether that's through your work, can you think of a season, a time, maybe it's even right now, where you can say, gosh, that was, that was sweet, that was joy-filled, that was filled with peace. It is important, as King David has reflected, as I reflect, it's important for you, for all of us to reflect and to know that it is in those seasons that we flourish. Even when the circumstances around us, the world might say, is the opposite of flourishing when we experience that intimate, deep relationship with God. As we reflect, though, I, I want to move to my second question. Again, as King David is kind of lost in thought, looking into the fire, I, I ask the second question. I said, King David, I hear you saying, and I know it's been said about you, that you were a man after God's own heart. I hear you saying that God called you to take that up, to make that a choice, to make that a decision, to make that a, a, a willful direction of your life. And you just shared the joys of that, the peace of that, how that changed your relationship with God, but also with other people. But my question for you is, what did it cost you to lay down in order to pick that up? King David looks up from the fire and he says this, what I had to lay down was a fear of the giants in my midst. And you might think of the giants in my midst as just one with a name, Goliath. And yes, he was a giant of a man, a giant of a warrior. In fact, that experience in my life was one in which as I marched out onto the battlefield as a young boy, first given armor too big for me, weighed down, and then I cast it aside. As I walked out, I had a, a decision. I had a choice in that moment. Would I follow the call of God in my life to be a man passionate and pursuing God's heart? Or would I allow the fear of a giant in front of me to paralyze me, to deter me from, from pursuing God's heart? All I knew in that moment was that this Philistine, that this, this people believed that the maker of heaven and earth was false, was a lie, was powerless. And in that moment, I made a decision to not allow the giant of Goliath to paralyze me, to fill me with fear, and I simply, I stepped out in faith. But I've got to tell you that that was the smallest giant that I faced in my life. Many people think that that is the only giant, but actually that was the smallest one. In fact, a greater giant that perpetually pursued me, that tried to kill me, was a father figure in my life, King Saul. And I've got to tell you that that giant 
was a greater threat, uh, had a greater possibility of, of paralyzing me in fear. And God was calling me to take up, like I said, to be a man passionately pursuing God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength, and to lay down a fear of the giants in my midst. And King Saul was even bigger than Goliath in my heart and in my mind. I was devastated. This father figure whom I loved, whom I served, became jealous. He plotted against me. I had to flee. He tried to kill me multiple times. In every single moment, and there was moments where I made awful decisions, but every single moment was a choice, a decision. Do I allow the giant of Saul to become greater than God's call in my life? But I've got to tell you, bigger than Goliath, bigger than Saul was another giant. And it was my son, Absalom. I wasn't related by blood to Saul, though he was a father figure, and yet Absalom, my son, was my child. And as my child grew up, as he was filled with pride, as he was filled with envy, as he was filled with rage, like Saul, he, he plotted against me. He attempted to overthrow the kingdom that God had set me upon the throne. And to have flesh and blood betray you, to plot against you, to attempt to murder you, was an infinitely greater giant than Saul or even Goliath. And during that season, there was choices again and again and again. There was moments where I made terrible mistakes. I, I made the wrong decision, and yet there was a choice. Do I listen to the call of God in my life? Do I passionately pursue God, or do I allow the giant that is my son Absalom to paralyze me in fear? Do I allow that to become bigger than God's call on my life? But I've got to tell you that, that Goliath and Saul... And Absalom were nothing compared to the greatest giant in my life. And in that moment, King David goes silent. And he stares into the fire. And I'm wondering, what, what, what is he going to... I mean, what can be bigger than Goliath? What can be bigger than Saul? What can be bigger than Absalom, his son? And I wonder, what, what giant is there? I think of his life. I think of the things that I've known of him. What could it be? And in that moment, I self-reflect. I think, gosh, what is in my own life the things that deter me from following God? Is it fear? Is it needing to be a people pleaser, to be all things to all people? Is it to... Uh, to, to be first? Is it to be in control? What is it? And maybe even for you, as we wonder what David's about to say, can you reflect on your own life? What are the giants that have grown in your life that perhaps could prevent you or are preventing you from faithfully following and pursuing God's heart? Again, the bonfire is a place where there's space to self-reflect. And yet in that moment, King David, he looks up and he says this, That giant is so big, it is so great, 
that the greatest scars of my life have been inflicted by that giant. The greatest grief in my life have been inflicted by that giant. The greatest regrets in my life, the greatest sorrow in my life have been inflicted because of that giant. And that giant is the sin within me. Bigger than Goliath, bigger than Saul, bigger than Absalom. My greatest enemy was myself. I look back on my life as a human, as a warrior, as a father, as a king, and as a man. And I realize in each of those areas of my life, I was my greatest enemy. As a human, I lied to the high priest and I knew it. And the ripple effects of that lie were incalculable. As a warrior, when I was pursued by Saul, most people forget this. I, I, I fleed Israel and I went to live with the Philistines. And for 16 months, I fought as a mercenary, as a warrior for God's enemy. I fought for the Philistines. The very nation opposed to God's people. I represented them in war. As a father... My son, Amon, did something horrific to his half-sister. And as a father, I didn't step in. I didn't stop it. I didn't discipline. And the ripple effects of that decision were incalculable. As a king, there was a season where I became more focused on the growth of my kingdom that against God's wishes against what the prophets had told me. I took my eye off of God and I wanted there to be a census because I wanted to know just how many people, just how many cattle, just how big the numbers of my kingdom were and I sinned because I took my eyes off of God and I was focused on the numerical growth of my kingdom. And then finally as a man, I saw her, another man's wife. And in a falling domino effect of some of the greatest regrets of my life, I took her as my own, Bathsheba. And to cover it up, I had her husband Uriah killed. And I look back on these moments and I realize that the giants in my midst were great outside of me, but they were the greatest inside of me. That I was my own worst enemy. That the thing that God called me to do to be a person simply, passionately pursuing God's heart, loving God with everything and loving my neighbor as myself, I realized that there was temptation there was fear. 
There were things that rose up around me and inside of me. Giants that not only had the potential, but actually did prevent me from stepping out in faith, stepping out in obedience and following God. And I have such tremendous regret, such tremendous sorrow, such tremendous guilt over those decisions. And it's not just what it did to me, and it's not just what it did to others, but my greatest guilt is what that did to God. And there was this moment in my life where Nathan, after I took Bathsheba as my own, after I had her husband killed, Uriah, Nathan came and he confronted me and he told me a story that I didn't understand what he was saying about. And I realized as God used him to speak the truth into my life that he pointed to me and he says, you are that man, you are the man that has sinned against God. And I realized in that moment I was cut through the heart that as he spoke truth and love to me, that I remembered the call of God in my life. That even when the giants were so great outside of me, and even when the giant of sin was so great within me that God was bigger than it. And in that moment, I repented. I turned. I not allowed, I didn't allow that giant of sin in my life to destroy me, to crush me, to paralyze me. And I said to Nathan before God, I said, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord God Almighty. And in that moment, I turned away from that giant and I asked for forgiveness and I received grace. I received mercy. I received forgiveness. And though so horrific the decisions that I made, I realized there was nothing that I could do that could become so great a giant that it could ever slay God's forgiveness. And so I learned throughout my life, no matter how great the giants were, that God was calling me to lay down my fear of them, to lay down being paralyzed by them, whether outside of me or within. And in that moment, King David stopped again and he looked into the fire. I'm just, my mind is swirling and I'm just reflecting on my own life and I realize how how I can get into a pattern where I choose my way rather than God's way and how that guilt can grow and I can begin to hide it and it can be something that becomes just paralyzed and it actually prevents me from turning back to God. I, I have this fear in my own life, as, even as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a man, as a human being, I, I can fall prey to those giants in my life, the sin in my own life. And what a great reminder it is for me that even the sin that can grow in my life, it is never so great a giant that it could ever destroy or slay the work that God can do to reconcile and forgive. And what about you? As we sit around this bonfire, as we reflect just for a moment, are there things in your life right now that have filled you with guilt, have filled you with sorrow, have filled you with regret that perhaps have become giants in your heart that are actually uh, preventing you from taking a step out in faith to, to ask God for forgiveness, to extend an apology to someone else, to course correct with the help of God. 
It's easy to think of giants as things outside of us, whether people or circumstances or God's enemy. But there's giants within us. Giants of temptation that grow and grow and grow as we say yes to them, as we feed them, as we give in to them. These giants that become our sin nature. Would you hear King David say that those giants are never bigger than what God can do to redeem, to forgive, to reconcile? And as we reflect around this bonfire, I, I, as always, want to ask my third and final question. I said, King David, okay, God has called you to take up, to pick up being a man passionately pursuing God's heart. And I heard you say that God has called you to, to lay down a fear of the giants, not just outside of you, but also the giants within you. So my question for you is when you chose that and to lay those things down, was it worth it? And King David looks up and he smiles. And he says, remember that moment? Remember that moment I shared with you earlier about how I wanted to build a home for God and how God had other plans and God said to me, actually, I'm going to make not just a kingdom for you, but through your descendants, there would be one. And he would have a home for God. He would be the builder of that home. He would be the one whose kingdom would be established. Well, I want you to know that in the fullness of time, I, King David, have come to understand who God was talking about. Because I had a son. And yes, it was through Bathsheba. And his name was Solomon. And he had children. And they 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 had a son named Jesus from Nazareth, who was the very Son of God, whom God looked at and said, This is my dwelling place. Who looked at Jesus and said, It is him that the kingdom of God shall be established. It is on him, Jesus, that he would sit at the highest throne to be the king above all kings, that he would be a king unlike any other king before me, King David. He would be a king unlike any after me, but he would be a king perfectly, passionately pursuing God's heart, that he would be a king always doing the will of God the Father. And yet the giant of sin would rise up in his life. And it wouldn't be because he sinned. Though he was tempted, just like we've been tempted, he was one, perfectly without sin. But that giant of sin rose up in his life because he chose to go to the cross. He chose to go as a sacrifice on behalf of all of humanity. And I want you to imagine this. 
that the giants that have risen up in every human being's life, including mine, King David's life, those giants have become so big just in our own lives. But imagine if you put all of them together over the course of human history, the giant that is the sin of all humankind, it is that giant that rose up and went toe-to-toe with Jesus. The greatest battle ever ensued on the cross. And when Jesus died, there was many who thought that that giant of sin, that giant of death, that giant that was God's enemy had won. And yet as God has always proven God's self to be, God was victorious. And on the third day, Jesus burst forth from the tomb, forever destroying the giant of sin in all of humanity. He put an end to the destruction permanently that sin could have for those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Was it worth it? I, King David, was just a foreshadow for the greatest king that humanity has ever known. I was a king, yes, that pursued God's heart, but I did so imperfectly. And yet through my lineage, through my household, came Jesus, the king above all kings, the great prince of priests, the great high priest, the greatest warrior of all, the greatest and most beautiful human that has ever lived, the very son of God. And so friends, Drew, don't try to imitate me, King David. But look through my life to the one whom my life points to, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the great reconciler and defeater of all things. Was it worth it? Absolutely. In that moment, I am just, I'm taking all of this in. As you take this in, As we're around this bonfire, my hope and my prayer is that we would be a people that would look at King David, that we would marvel at the fact that he was simply a human just like us. And that we would look through his life to the perfect king, Jesus Christ. That we would see in him the greatest warrior of all, the greatest human of all. That we would find in Scripture in some of the most unlikely places, a king who carries us to his table. Scripture says that we can't bring ourselves before God, a lot like Mephibosheth. And it's not because we are physically impaired, it's because we're spiritually impaired because of our sin. And in the same way, the generosity and the compassion that King David had towards even his enemies and Mephibosheth, God the Father has for you through Jesus Christ. And he says, let me carry you to my table. Would you allow yourself to be carried? No matter how great the giants are in your life, around you or in you, would you allow Jesus, the King of Kings, to carry you to his table? Where you have a seat, where you have a place, As a child of God, adopted into God's family, would you say yes to that invitation? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the king above all kings. You are the great redeemer and reconciler of all. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you are the great defeater of the greatest giant of all, and we receive you in this moment, longing that we would know more about who you are, that we would be open to you carrying us into your presence every moment of every day. May we be people that passionately pursue you, Jesus. As we follow you, would you grow us? Would you fill us with your spirit? It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.